Living Adventurously is brought to you in partnership with Kamut, the route planning and navigation app that helps you make the most of your outdoor adventures. Whether you're cycling, hiking, running or bikepacking, Kamut's easy-to-use technology will get you out the door and exploring more of the great outdoors. You can see where I've been exploring by checking out the highlights of my journey on Kamut. Just follow the link in the show notes. My name is Alistair Humphreys. I set out on a bicycle journey around Yorkshire to speak to interesting, ordinary people who, in very different ways, are making an effort to live adventurously. I wanted to talk about what they do, about the barriers they've faced along the way, and to seek their perspective on some of the big questions that all of us encounter in our lives. Welcome to Living Adventurously. <laughs> I've written here, needs intro music. Um, okay, here we go. Um... <laughs> Have a loop. Tom Ord Paulett's family have been in Yorkshire for 800 years. I interviewed Tom in their 14th century family castle, Bolton Castle, in Wensleydale. The huge Bolton estate has an important role to play in managing and caring for the beautiful landscapes of Wensleydale and the Yorkshire Dales National Park. After 800 years of generation handing on to generation, Tom is very conscious that it's his duty to hand things over to the next generation in a better condition than he inherited it. Tom was in the army for seven years, and during that time he was awarded the Military Cross. I was curious about war's impact on Tom in terms of truly learning about yourself, challenging yourself, and seeing how you cope when things get properly dark and tough. The very sort of things I've tried to find out myself through the much smaller, very trivial world of expeditions. I wondered whether there was any comparison between adventure and war. These days, Tom is a passionate conservationist. He's keen on trees, he loves his rivers, and he's particularly concerned about the plight of the curlew and its really alarming decline. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Al. Welcome. <laughs> um, it's, I find it very strange starting an interview when we've been talking for a while, and not only that, uh, we met yesterday evening because you let me stay up in your lovely... Um, Hut, yeah, yeah, lunch um, hut. Which at the time just thought, oh, this is quite nice. This morning I was deeply grateful because it was lashing with rain. Um, we are sitting in the old kitchen of your family castle, which is an unusual place for me to be interviewing someone, but a great um, place for me to ask questions about the idea of home. So I'm cycling around Yorkshire for a month because I grew up in Yorkshire, but I live down south. So where is my home? That's what I'm interested in. So I think given that we're sitting in your family castle, we could start in point of what is home for you? I, for me, home is, is it's Wensleydale. It, you know, it is the Bolton estate and, and the castle sits at the heart of that. And I'm, you know, I feel very much at home here, although I don't live in the castle after the <laughs> Civil War and, you know, when it, when it suffered quite a lot of damage, instead of sort of repairing that, the family built a new home 
uh, down at Bolton Hall, which is close to Wensley, and that so that was finished in 1678, and that's where Katie, my wife, and I, and our four children moved into about a year ago. So you know that is home, and absolutely, I feel at home there. Um, so how long um, has your family been in that house for 350 odd years? Yeah, and absolutely. before that, you're in the castle. For... Before that, it was the castle. So how... Since the castle was finished in 1399. Okay, um, but actually, the hall where we are now. I mean, there's been a house there since Roman times and I think I saw something the other day of a, a sort of ancestor, ancestress of mine who was born in Wensley in 1218 so actually you know the family had been in Wensley and around here before the hall or the castle so um, so you're a proper Yorkshireman I think yeah I think I can definitely you, claim you to be a proper Yorkshireman that, yeah, that yeah yeah more than more than five generations wow yeah it's an amazing thing do, and does that do you think the feeling of do you think the feeling accumulates over generations? For example, if do you, do you, and it's impossible to know this, but do you feel that you have a different connection with here than if you just arrived from Milton Keynes on the day you were born? Yeah, I would. Does it accumulate? I would say undoubtedly, or it does in you know in my mind and my heart, it does. It, it, you know, you, you have that sense of a deep, long-standing connection you know, the landscape we look at, the wildlife that exists here, the communities, you know, my family and, and many other families of, of people around here still, you know, in these communities, you know, have been here for generations and generations. And, um, you know, that's incredibly special. So, no, I, th I think there is more depth. I'm not suggesting someone can't yeah. feel totally home at somewhere where, you know, they've just fallen in love with. But I think, you know, that, that the sort of active involvement engagement with with the landscape with communities over over you know a long period of time you know it does does create a very strong connection yeah yeah i've no doubt of that um and a large part of the work that you do now is well clearly you don't work in the tea room because you couldn't find the coffee this morning <laughs> the castle tea room but a large part of the work you do here is to do with the conservation of the the estate and the local area um the moors and the rivers uh, can you tell me a little bit about about that? Yeah, and what, I, I mean, I suppose it, it slightly ties into what what you were saying about you know what is home and and you know the the landscapes, the wildlife, the communities we have here, and you know the natural and the built environment are you know they're very close to my heart, so that they're very much you know what I feel my raison d'être is and trying to protect and and enhance them, and um, you know so in terms of day jobs and office work, you know, the castle is, is sort of my main business. Um, when I first came back home to Yorkshire and we left the army about 12 years ago, you know, I was, I was very much full, all my time really was at the castle. And then from that, I've become involved in different things. And as you mentioned, the river, so, you know, the sort of conservation side of the river, the management, hopefully sort of sensitively and, and sustainably. And, you know, and then having a commercial fishery on the back of that, which is all catch and release. And obviously for it to be an is ongoing fishery. all fish, catch and release? Uh, well, for the salmon, it's all catch and release. We do, you know, allow the odd trout to be taken. Yeah. But, um, and most, I mean, even most trout fishermen would rather put a trout back than, than, than kill it, yeah. really. Um, so yeah, and with a fishery or anything like this, you obviously have to protect it and have have you know the populations of fishes best interest at heart because otherwise next year or the year after you won't there won't be any fish yeah. for people to come and fish for. So you know there's there's obviously a very sort of natural incentive to do it do it sustainably. But I'm I'm interested in that idea of the the longevity of it. And partly it's just you know the hundreds of years you got your 
family have been doing this, but just leaving that aside, anyone interested in conservation and protecting the landscape is such a long-term task. You showed me yesterday evening some trees. They were fairly young. Well, they weren't saplings. They're a bit more than that, but mm. your dad planted those. So what, what work are you doing, Say, let's say, on the river that you're putting a lot of time and effort in, but won't reap benefits for a long time to come. Because um, I, I love the idea yeah. of people who do that sort of thing. Um, yeah, no, I mean, undoubtedly, you know, the trees that, that you said, not much more than sap. I mean, they were planted in uh, between 94 and 98. Oh, so, quite, yeah. I mean, 20 years ago. Yeah. So, but it's, you know, that's, it's, uh, and, and they're now, you know, every year when you see them, they, you know, they get bigger and sort of more impressive and they still look, tiny to someone who hasn't been watching them, yeah. I suppose, for the last... Um, and we were a long way away from ten years, and we were quite a long way away. <laughs> but no, I mean, you're right. They're, they're a very, you know, it's a very sort of young plantation of, you know, native uh, broadleaves. But, you know, some things with the river, you can, you know, if you've got a problem with, you know, diffuse pollution or poaching by livestock, you know, if you fence a bit of tributary off, it will revegetate, you know, and recover potentially very quickly. Um, but there's there's obviously other challenges. So you know, one example might be a sort of solar drinkers we have. So you know, oh, where, so, solar powered drinkers. So where historically you know, a farmer's livestock might have just you know gone to drink from the river, and and that's sort of very bucolic and been happening for hundreds of years. But actually, if we want to ease the pressure on the riverbank, you know, fencing off a stretch of riverbank, potentially planting trees on it. But one of the things we've done in one area is put, put these solar power drinkers in. So you've got a pump going into the river that fills up a trough for the livestock to drink from, ah, but, you know, out of the river. So it's reducing the pressure. It's allowing the trees that have been planted there and, you know, and the natural vegetation to, to really recover and, and in turn give more strength to the riverbank to stop erosion, which then prevents the siltation of, of soil and things getting into the river, which, you know, can clog up the reds, the salmon and the trout. They spawn in... Um, sort of gravel usually sort of marble to goose egg size gravel so if that all gets smothered with soil that's been washed into the river it you know that's no good for their breeding so it's you know trying to do things that that you know that example would improve water quality it would help with flood risk downstream um you know improves biodiversity so you know one set of actions can actually deliver a really broad range of of benefits one of the I only learnt this saying quite recently, but it's become, I think, the sort of defining way I'm trying to get on with my life these days. Mm. And I think you're embodying it, which is the, the Chinese saying of um, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. Have you heard that phrase? I hadn't heard it, no, I, no. Once I heard that, I thought, wow, that effect, that's got so much relevance in so many things in my life. But um, So I really, I love what you're doing, that hopefully... Your, gener- your family will be doing this yeah. for 600 years from now. They'll yeah. be wondering um, what you've got. And, and that, I think, is, you know, a sort of more profound quote. There's a bit, there's a bit of a cliche now, which is, is very, very true, but the right tree in the right place. I haven't heard that. Um, yeah, we're exchanging you know, and the idea we all, we all, you know, love, love the idea of having more trees and, and they, you know, deliver huge benefits in terms of carbon storage and, and you know... Um, flood mitigation and, and all sorts of things. But actually, you know, blanketing hillsides in non-native conifers, you know, yeah. isn't necessarily a good thing environmentally. And, and of course, we need to produce, you know, commercially harvestable timber for infrastructure and things. But, you know, up here, for example, and where we look to the tree planting is also 
um, you know, very valuable habitat for waders, for the curlews and the lapwings and the golden plovers. And, you know, in other areas, you know, such as northwest Scotland at times or southwest Scotland, where, you know, big areas of forestry have been planted, you know, it creates a haven for the predators, you know, and then we lose these very vulnerable ground nesting birds. So, you know, I would say not forestry everywhere. I love the idea of having more trees. And, you know, I suppose when I'm going around, my mind's always ticking about, you know, would that be a good place to plant trees or not? Um, but it is, you know, this sort of saying, I think, which is said a lot, but I think is true that, you know, the right tree in the right place. What is your favourite tree? Good question. Um, <laughs> I like people who think of this as a good question, not just a silly little question. Uh, my favourite tree, tree species, species or individual yeah, tree species. Tree. Okay, because yeah. there's some quite interesting trees with sort of stories on the estate uh, and one that's sort of supposed to be haunted by a witch, which is a very <laughs> old oak, uh, Nanny Doon's oak, and. Um, I'll come back to that. Okay, I'll right. give you thinking will, time then. Yeah, I'll ask yeah. you another deep question. What's your favourite bird? I, I think I have to say the curly. I, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time, you know, watching them. I've had a lifelong enjoyment of listening to them, and they're very much, you know, the soundtrack of spring and summer up here when they, well, apart from they stay here over winter, but in the sort of wintering flocks, they're, you know, they're not in the breeding mode. They're not, they're not doing their bubbling calls and things. But that, you know, when the bubbling calls mm. start in spring, that that is, you know, the. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's a good impression. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, and my daughter once did this amazing with, with her throat, you know, the, the bubble, and, and she's never been able to do it since, oh. but um, it was just totally intuitive, but I don't know how she managed to produce that sound, but it's... Um, well, that's cur- so yeah. lovely. I, I love curlews, and I only very recently realised via a book I read, which you happened by sheer chance to be mentioned in, how endangered they are. Yeah, it's really sad. They're um, they're having an incredibly tough time, mm. uh, you know, certainly across Western Europe, and the UK is a particularly important country for them. So Russia has more than us, and Finland has a bigger breeding population for us. But so in terms of numbers, we're the third biggest population. But because of the size of the UK, and also because our the breeding the numbers of breeding birds are swelled over winter by um, sort of migrants that that come here from from Russia and Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. The UK is, you know, very arguably the most most important country in the world for the Eurasian curlew. Um, there's two other species of curlew, the uh, slender bills and the Eskimo curlew, that have gone extinct in the last 20, 30, 40 years. Fully extinct so, or extinct yeah, here? Yeah, extinct. Gosh. Um, out, of, out of six curlew species. So as, you know, as a sort of family, the, the Numenini, are you know they're very vulnerable to extinction they're ground nesting birds so they're sort of vulnerable to habitat loss or changes you know and also hugely vulnerable to predation and and that's probably the single biggest factor that is now in a sort of ongoing way driving declines gosh it's really sad isn't it um right i'm going to change topic now yeah from home um to adventure okay did you join the army for an adventure? I I never grew out of the idea of wanting to join the army. I, you as know, a as a kid. child, you okay. sort of play at soldiers and have action man and things. And you know, I always loved 
camping outside and you know an outdoors life and and that was you know a very natural sort of career choice for someone that, that wanted to live that life but yeah I mean I suppose there is an inherent sense of adventure about being in the army and you know you're going to have lots of adventures so so yes I mean I suppose it it was but it it, it wasn't the specific reason okay so um so your reasons were sort of reasons boys have always enjoyed that sort of stuff, was it, originally? I would say so, yeah. And I'm not sure I even thought about okay. it that deeply. It was yeah. just something I'd always, always wanted, wanted to do and, and always yeah. seen myself doing. And I'd, I'd you know, from then done CCF at school and really enjoyed that. Um, so I'd never had any interest in joining the army at all. Um, it never really interested me. But then for some... Well, actually, I know the reason. At... University, I joined the OTC for mm. two reasons. One, you got paid to go run around the hills, and two, you had really cheap beer and good parties. Um, so, at my time in the OTC, the sort of TA studenty bit of the army, I loved. Uh, I loved the the physical challenge, the running around the hills, the sense of shared hardship and camaraderie, and being in situations like lying in a ditch in the rain, where your two choices are to cry or to laugh a lot. And I loved that side of it. But then, never, then I decided to get my adventurous kicks by going off on adventures on my own instead. So, um, this, so you then actually went to do proper army as opposed to me just mucking about. And you, you went to war in Iraq. Is, could you describe a war as an adventure or is that a completely inappropriate word? Um. No, I think it, I think it would be inappropriate if you thought I want to go to war to for, have an adventure. Fun. Yeah, it. But you know, I mean, the nature of it is it is adventurous, risk and many, excitement, yeah, and it, it's, danger, it's and in some ways, I suppose, almost the ultimate in terms of you know, life, death, risk, testing, balancing yourself. risks, you know, making judgments in, you know potentially difficult terrain conditions. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I suppose one couldn't say it's not an adventurous thing, but, no. but hopefully just a sense of adventure isn't what would take someone to war. No, yeah. no. So I, um, I didn't join the army. Mm. Lots of my friends did. And one thing I've often wondered is that the things that I've gone off to do, the expeditions I've done that I found really hard, the reasons, one of the reasons I've enjoyed, not enjoyed... One of the reasons I've appreciated them in my life is the things they've taught me about myself, the sort of how I cope in hard times and, and, um, and that sort of thing. Mm. But I'm also very conscious that all I've been doing is playing a game, really, and there's, there's a whole level of testing yourself and struggle above and beyond that, which I think being at war is one. So what did your experiences of uh, that Iraq teach you about yourself? Um, I, yeah, I think what you said about, you know, different levels isn't, you know, potentially on an, you know, an adventurous expedition, you know, one of the poles or rowing the Atlantic, or, you know, the risks are just different. It, it's not necessarily okay. one, they're different, they are just different, different risks. Um, what did it teach me about myself? I... I mean, you mentioned earlier the you know the camaraderie, the the shared experience, and and you know 
being close to people, knowing your own, you know, deepest fears in those situations, other people's, and and in that environment, you you get to know people, you know, as well as your family know you, you know, probably better in many ways, yeah. and and strengths and weaknesses. But you know, having such a close, intense well, relationship are under very intense circumstances. You you know, you see those around you as greatest strengths and weaknesses, and it's. You know, I think you can learn a lot from, you know, the most impressive people and the people you, you know, aspire to be like in those those circumstances. And, you know, I think you maybe also become more tolerant of your own weaknesses and realise that, you know, everyone has has uh, weaknesses and, and find ways of, of managing them. And, you know, trust, I think. I was incredibly lucky you know, to have an absolutely amazing company commander, absolutely amazing platoon sergeant, and amazing section commanders. And, you know, just being able to trust people absolutely, and even at times when, you know, I hadn't got a clue what was going on, you couldn't, you know, see what was going on, it's disorientating, just knowing that they were going to be doing the right things at the right times. And, um, you know, and they always were, and, you know, and we were very, very lucky. So, yeah. Do you ever miss those days? Um, no, I don't think someone could leave the army and not slightly miss that, that sense of camaraderie and that the closeness, the trust of having so many people around you all the time who you, you know, trust with your life or would trust with your life. Um, but on balance, if I'd stayed in the army when I left, I'd have ended up doing probably a staff job or two staff jobs over four years. It wouldn't a, have been the same job, job that... I had been doing it in the army, so actually, even if I'd been in the army, I would have been missed. I would have missed the, the sort of, you know, the the sort of exciting platoon command type work that that so many people join the army to do. But now you're um, now you've left the army and you're living a nice life up in Yorkshire with your kids. Um, does real life ever seem boring compared to your youthful, adrenaline-filled days? Um, I'm just asking no, this for, it, I'm asking I mean, for it, a friend. It can, be, it can be mundane at times, but I, I don't think boring. And, and I think, you know, when you look at it on balance, you know, I feel so lucky I've got a few friends who are still in. And, you know, my admiration for them who can keep doing, you know, going on operation, doing very um, dangerous and intensive stuff while they have a young family at home... You know, having left the army before I had my family, I just can't comprehend it. it. You know, my, for me, in my, you know, very selfish way, you know, my thoughts, my worries would be about looking after my family and keeping going home to look, look, look after them rather than, you know, having that total commitment to the job, which, which so many of these guys who've stayed in with, with young families do. And I think, you know, both they, you know, and their wives who, you know, Kate and I both you know, effectively live and work from home with our four children. And, you know, it's hard work looking after them with two of us. You know, the army wives who stay at home while their husband, you know, goes off for six months, but probably having been away for most of the six months before that on pre-deployment training and things, you know, I think, I think they're, you know, incredible people and, and you know, incredibly brave and, and are sacrificing, enormously. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Would you want your children to join the army? It's something that I would never... I would never push them towards, but I would support them fully if, if they wanted to. Um, you know, yeah, I'd be very, very happy if they did want to. But, you know, I remember over the years and when I was in the army, especially I had sort of 
family friends who, you know, might have had, you know, younger children who were sort of looking at what to do and, oh, you know, will you talk to him about the army and it'd be so good for him and, or her. Yeah. And, you know, there is, someone has to want to do it. It, it. You know, I think it would be totally wrong, and especially given, you know, what's at stake to talk someone into joining the army. But <laughs> yes. if, if someone actually wants to, I think it's an amazing thing to do. And, and you know, anyone that wants to, I would, I would want to fully support in doing that. Yeah. Thank you. So one of the things I've been doing is I've been going around on my bike for a month is uh, asking people the same sort of questions um, that I've got in this deck of cards and getting very different people's different takes on some quite life questions that have been interested to me. So if you wouldn't mind sharing me your bit of your wisdom. So take one off the top, see what you've got. Feel free to ignore any you don't want to do. Uh, yeah, within reason we can do anything, but we can't do everything. How do you choose how to spend your energy and time? Um, I think we're most driven and most motivated by the things that interest us most. And we've, you know, talked a bit about the conservation and things. And, you know, particularly with the curlies, it, you know, it's not, it's not a sort of job. It's not part of my livelihood. But I do, in some ways, I do think it underpins, you know, land ownership, land management, the... the you know, farm payments that are, that farmers on the estate get who are who are um, supporting curlews and and have you know relatively healthy populations of curlews on their land and and I think you know looking forward to post Brexit agricultural policy you know I think I think there's a great success story to be told here and, and I think it's important that someone is telling it and if if you know, uh, payments for environmental services, public money for public goods, you know, all this sort of ethos about how public money should be spent. I actually, I now feel that food production is being undervalued and is a public good. Um, but if there's going to be a greater focus on, on biodiversity and environmental benefits, I, th I think there is this great good news story. And, you know, I'm, I'm keen to try and pull all that together and, and part of that would be developing a farmer cluster and many of the farmers are already, you know, working very positively and engaging with a lot of this stuff. But, you know, to create something more formal that, that would, you know, underpin their livelihoods if in post-Brexit sort of agricultural policy does become more environmentally focused, which, which I think it will. Um, so, so I suppose in some slightly tenuous way, it, it is connected to our livelihood here. But... You know, I, I've spent probably much more time getting involved in curlew conservation than than would make sense from a financial <laughs> perspective. Yeah. You know, in the, the you know not not earning money out of it, and probably at times I should have been spending more time in the office here. You know, doing what is more technically a sort of day job. Okay. Um, but so you know, I think the things that you love and care about and are interested in, you'll always find time mm. to do. Whereas sometimes the office work. Has to take a bit of a backseat. Okay, thank you. That's a good answer. Uh, it's also the first mention of the B word, I think, in a month on the road. Which ah, has been right. A okay. nice time yeah. for me to be away from uh, yeah. all that stuff on my yeah. bike. Yeah. Okay. Next one, I'll do a couple, yeah. few more. Uh, what story would you put on the front page of the newspaper? I would, you know, I think I'd get the curlies a bit more publicity. Um, I wonder what impact it would make if if people actually realised quite what a disastrous position everything's getting towards. Because I think we all think... We, I think it's, there's been a big change in public consciousness now, or we must 
get rid of plastic straws, for example. Mm. But the precipitous decline of so many things, I think, is still just vaguely in people's back back of the mind, isn't it? But you living on the, living here, do you notice it more viscerally? Do you think and it declines in wildlife? Yeah, I. I think there are have been you know huge declines in many areas, but I think there are good news stories as well, and I think they're not always told. And I okay. think part of the you know professional world of conservation of charitable conservation, you know, it has to have a narrative to use to fundraise and to meet the core costs of these big organisations, and and you know. It, criticising them necessarily for being in that situation but I, I think I think often you know it's the bad news stories that are that are pushing people need to be aware of them yeah. but you know I I certainly increasingly feel that these declines are, are you know slightly manipulated or used mm. to manipulate public opinion and to you know to further fundraising which mm. you know I think those funds that are raised aren't often going to delivery of, of benefits in terms of, you know, they're just going into these sort of monolithic organisations, which, which, and it's difficult, and I've been involved with charities and, uh, you know, the Rivers Trust especially, and, you know, you, you try and do things with a sort of little bunch of amateur but very motivated people, and you get to a point when you realise you need more professional support, and you then need to fundraise to do that, you then get someone, and you know, then whatever their salary is, you've got to raise that £30,000 or whatever a year before you do anything in terms of tree planting or, or benefits in the river. And, and you know, that, that is the way of the world, um, unfortunately. But I think, I think almost the bigger and, you know, more highly staffed an organisation gets... It, you know, those core costs are just increasing and increasing again before they actually deliver any real benefit. So if I was going to give £1,000 to save the world, mm. which charity would you nominate for that? You can be as local as you choose. Um, about to save the world. Um, <laughs> Sorry, that's a ridiculous phrase. £1,000 for a efficient conservation it would, I think you'd have to find something local to you okay. and, and potentially, which what, I'm sure you what's could local put to you. So, so for me, say the, say the Rivers Trust here, the Yorkshire Dales Rivers Trust. Yorkshire Dales Rivers Trust, um, okay. And, Perfect. you know, and say you wanted to go into a specific project mm. about somewhere you really care about. And, um, you know, again, the Yorkshire Dales Rivers Trust, it covers four of your swale, uh, the Nid and the Wharf. Um and I would want, in, in that example or question you just asked me, you know, I would want it to go on to the River York, which yeah. is, is where I live and where I'm most passionate about. So I think it's important for people when they, you know, give to charities and things to be able to feel that they are directly contributing to something that's deliverable and it's not just going into, a, into the sort of ether, it's actually going to plant trees on that tributary or... or yeah. But, you know, so, but someone's donation has to pay for the toilet cleaner. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's, the, that's the, well, inevitable overheads of charity, I suppose, uh, isn't it? But, yeah, 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 yeah. OK, let's do a couple more questions. Yeah. Uh, uh, what would you say to someone who told you that your life was becoming less adventurous? Uh, yeah, I mean, 
mean, I would say it certainly has you know, <laughs> over the last few years. But then, it, you know, it's a different adventure. Having children yeah. is an adventure. It, it, you know, yesterday we're having a riding lesson and it's, you know, the pony's a bit naughty or you think they're about to fall off. I mean, that that gives you the same sense of fear and worry that, that one might have if, if one was in a, in a personally, you know, dangerous situation. So, you know, they're, they're, they're just different adventures, I would say. And, um, you know, they are steadier and I'm 40 quite recently. It's probably time for my life to be a bit less adventurous. Okay. Uh, what is a good decision you've made in life? What can that teach me about making decisions? I, don't, I mean, I think when you make a decision, you, you sort of stick stick with it in so far as it's, you know, continues to, to be the right decision and, and, you know, you make the most set the consequences of whatever decision, really. Um, but rather than changing good, your mind. Good decision, yeah. It, you know, I mean, within reason, if a situation changes, and obviously, of course, of course you change, change your mind, but, um, you know, I think sometimes you've just sort of got to get on and make decisions, good decisions. I mean, I think, I think joining the army was, was quite a big decision and, and it was, was one that I, you know, very much pleased I, I made. And, and um, yeah. Okay, my final question for you, Tom, because you've got a castle to, uh, to run and a curly to save. What's your favourite tree? Favourite tree? <laughs> I, I mean, I think oaks are maybe old sort of gnarly oaks and there are a couple of particular examples on the estate that I'm thinking of. I think sometimes, you know, silver birch, which is a really Ooh. pretty boring tree, but I actually, you know, I love the look of them all mm. the way through the year. Um, I, alders on the riverbank, I think would be really lovely. Um, And we've got, you know, in the garden, there's, there's a few walnuts that are, you know, particularly stunning in, in autumn. Um, and they're beautiful. But, I, you know, I'm, I'm definitely you know, biased towards native trees. Um, and I do feel increasingly strongly, you know, we need as much diversity as possible. Mm. And I'm not... I'm not you know, anti having any non-native trees, but you know, focus on the natives. But I think with these diseases affecting larch and oak and ash, and, and I think you know the ash dieback we're increasingly seeing here, and will have a, a really devastating effect on the woods. It, you know, we've got a lot of ash and oak, ash and sycamore, and it, the sort of different textures they have, the woods in the distance, besides them, when the ash go the woods will be much more a sort of monochrome, less textured colour. I think the woods will be, be much, much poorer for it. Um, you know, elms, we have a few elms around and they seem to get to a certain size. But I'm, yeah, I, I think diversity of, of as much as possible of, of native tree species is, is what, what I'd be. What is it you said? That right tree in the right the place? The right tree in the right place. Right tree yeah. in the right place. Yeah. Tom, thank you very much for letting me interview in a castle um, and for keeping me dry last night. Uh, no, I mean, you're so welcome. <laughs> Thank Lovely you very much. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Living Adventurously. There's show notes from every episode on my website, alistairhumphreys.com 
slash podcast. If you have enjoyed it, please take a screenshot of your phone and pop it up on social media or leave a review with your podcast provider. It makes a massive difference. Thank you very much. To make this podcast happen, I teamed up with Kamut, the outdoor planning and navigation app that helps you explore more of the great outdoors. One of the many ways Kamut helps you have better adventures is through their highlights feature. Kamut highlights are recommendations from local adventurers in the area you want to explore. They could be a great cafe, a particularly beautiful stretch of trail, a lookout point, or a well-stocked shop. These recommendations appear on the map as highlights, large red dots for popular highlights, those with lots of additional information and images, or small red dots for highlights that have fewer comments and images. Inside the hint, the size of the dot doesn't necessarily correspond to the quality of the highlight in real life. It only indicates how many people have visited the highlight before you. Perhaps it's a little less visited and therefore all the more special. Your very own outdoor experiences and some inspiring highlights are waiting for you. Go explore more with Kamut. Head to kamut.com slash g and use the voucher code adventurous to claim your free region bundle.